Civilians in space, what should we use as medical criteria? You're listening to Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, your host, and with me today is Dr. Jan Stepanik. Dr. Stepanik is medical director of the Aerospace Medical Program and assistant professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. His research interests include aerospace physiology and altitude-related clinical conditions. Today we're going to talk about civilians in space and what we might use as medical criteria. Jan, thanks for uh, being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Gary. Let's talk a little bit about uh, how somebody gets into the aviation medicine business. How, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your medical background and, and how you got into this uh, specialty. I would have to say that the specialty found me more so than me finding the specialty. Mm -hmm. um, I'm first trained in internal medicine and had a background in the mountain infantry in Switzerland and then later in the Air Force. When I came to this country and trained at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, I was approached and asked if I had interest potentially to do further education and training and full residency in aerospace medicine. You know, it was a perfect match for my interest, so, you know, it was a hearty yes, and um, that was now uh, good close to 10 years ago. And the rest is uh, history. Yes, they say, Absolutely. There's not many of us in the aerospace medicine business, so for the rest of our listening audience, uh, tell us the kinds of things a practitioner of aviation medicine might get involved with. You know, it's one of those specialties where oftentimes when we talk to colleagues, we have to explain what we do. It's essentially um, anything that has to do with uh, preparation and the environment of flight and sort of the extremes of exposure. This can be extreme terrestrial altitude exposure with hypoxia and the attendant risks thereof, to the extremes of spaceflight and exploration class missions, to the everyday that we all go through whenever we board an aircraft and go through the blessings of modern air travel with all the attendant problems and potential issues that can arise when traveling long distances on board aircraft. Right. So it's kind of a, I guess you could think of it as a subset of occupational medicine. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we're kind of interested and in, we've been hearing about civilians in space and, and actually we've seen some civilians in space. Maybe backing up a little bit, there are medical standards for pilots, right? That is correct. How do you go about thinking about uh, what medical standards for pilots ought to be? The thing that we have in aviation, and frequently there's a confusion between aviation medical examiners and aerospace medicine specialists. Aviation medical examiners are people that are designated by the federal aviation authorities to examine pilots and have the privilege to issue medical certificates for different types of flying. This can be a commercial pilot uh, sitting in front of the airplane that brings you to your destination to someone who is a private pilot. Now, with regards to certification and the way I think about certification of pilots, it's a matter of trying to make sure that we avoid having people in these responsible positions that have risk of sudden incapacitation and as a result of that potential for risk of injury to uh, life of their passengers, injury to themselves, and potentially also damage to uh, very expensive equipment. So the, the focus of medical standards for pilots is about minimizing risk of that sudden incapacitation. Absolutely. So uh, when you're examining a pilot, you're not particularly interested in you know how long he's going to live and uh, what's going to happen with his diabetes 20 years from now, but you're more interested in, is there a risk now? That is absolutely true. You know, it's the FAA examination is really a 
exam that we are doing for the purposes of making sure that the sensorium of the pilot you know, is where it needs to be. So basically that the person is able to hear communications, is able to see, it does have the appropriate depth perception, things that you know, could be a risk and a threat to the flight in and of itself. But the management of the health of pilots is something that is uh, dear and near to my heart because oftentimes pilots have not necessarily always a high degree of uh, medical sophistication. I would say sometimes that there is underlying suspicion you know, that may sometimes hail back to histories of grounding pilots and uh, pilots being basically implicitly afraid that whenever they walk into the physician's office, they are not uh, likely to volunteer a lot of information that could potentially put their medical at risk. As a result of that, we find ourselves in sad situations and uh, have cases where pilots have the perception, well, a class one pilot, for instance, under FAA rules, needs to see me as of now every six months in order to have uh, their FAA medical privileges uh, be reinstated. And they have the perception, well, my health is good. I'm seeing a physician every six months. Hmm. As a result of that, you know, there's not going to be any problems and I'm not going to die of prostate cancer or colon cancer, forgetting that they're actually not undergoing a full medical evaluation. So one of the things that I always do when I see pilots is highlight to them, this is not a general medical examination, and this does not cover the things that you need in order to have your basic preventive services covered. Yeah, good point. If you're uh, just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Jan Stepanek, and we're talking about civilians in space and what we might use as medical criteria. So, Jan, we, uh, we talked a little bit about how we approach uh, pilots and their medical standards, so let's transition a little bit now. I assume it's fair to say that medical standards would be tighter as we get to, like, military pilots, NASA astronauts, things like that. Would that be fair to say? That's absolutely true, and, you know, this is basically a big distinction that needs to be made in general between government-driven and vehicle-driven and mission-driven standards in a select-in versus select-out situation. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, government space flight and military flight to date has been more like uh, trying to select the individual that has the best attributes and you have the luxury of typically having many more applicants than what you have in terms of jobs for them to fulfill. So you can basically pick and make sure that you get the best specimens, so to speak, and as a result of that, you also decrease the likelihood of having any problems down the road pretty much in any environment that these people may be exposed to. Now, in contrast to that, if you go from a paradigm of selecting out, where you can basically make the selection and get the perfect specimen, you go to something akin to civilian spaceflight, where the paradigm shifts. It's selecting in. It's really, you have to assume that these people have medical conditions by virtue of not having been selected out and not having gone through this rigorous selection process that has left you with the perfect specimen. Mm -hmm. Quite on the contrary, conceivably. I mean, many of these people, the average age is in the mid-50s. It's more males than females. So there is the fair share of diseases that we're liable to see with our regular patients in that age bracket, type 2 diabetes, coronary artery disease, chronic obstructive lung disease. 
Many of these people tend to have very intense lives and they frequently also indulge in things. And as a result of that, there may be um, comorbidities later on. So the concept of standards for selecting people for civilian spaceflight, have such standards been codified in any fashion? Have they been standardized? What about internationally? What's the sort of the lay of the land right now? Let me give you a little bit of a tour of the horizon. You know, the short answer to your question would be a brief no. Um, but I will elaborate a little bit because the uh, reality is that at this point in time, the only mandate that we have in this country for the screening of spaceflight participants, there is no standards that they need to fulfill. So there is no medical standards. The last FAA rule, the final rule, that was basically an amendment of the 2004 U.S. Commercial Space Launch Act, mandates that a detailed informed consent be given to the participants. What that means is that a participant needs to get a sense of what are the risks. There needs to be a waiver against the U.S. government that is signed. There needs to be a documented training for emergency aspects of the flight, smoke, fire, depressurization, emergency exit, etc., and abiding by security requirements akin to going through an airport these days, whatever the TSA wants you to do, you need to agree to do as well when you go into orbit or mm-hmm. suborbit. Mm-hmm. But that's the extent of medical uh, certification requirements that you know are legal. So basically, there is no standards for civilians. The pilot up front needs to carry at least a Class two FAA Airman Medical Certificate, which is a relatively lenient standard and the FAA and the government in this country has taken a stance to not restrict and be too dogmatic about what they feel needs to happen, but rather give the industry the opportunity to, A, evolve and then also self-regulate. That is the private spaceflight industry. That is correct. From where you sit and what you've heard, do you see this situation changing? Do you see it becoming more regulated, more codified in terms of medical criteria? Down the road, there is going to be, depending on events, likely the notion that more regulation will get into the equation. So if there's going to be significant flight experience that will be accumulated over several years, and there's going to be also experience with near misses or potential mishaps that will make it very clear as to what the key risk elements are, those are going to enter into the regulation and those are going to enter into the recommendations. The thing that is interesting in a way is that most civilian spaceflight participants, not based on the FAA ruling, but based on the practical fact that for some of their pre-participation exposures, are still going to end up having FAA Class II medicals. These days, if you want to do an altitude chamber ride um, in order to experience the environment prior to going up, if you want to go into a centrifuge, most places are going to want to have a Class II Airman Medical Certificate equivalent. And that basically dates all the way back to military operations because it's a simple way to make sure that there's no major issues arrive before you sit down in the cockpit or in the chamber. We have a lot of experience with uh, astronauts and their experience in space. We sort of know how they've responded to the environment. I assume it's safe to say that we don't have much data in the literature as to uh, people going into space who have some of the things you mentioned earlier, chronic uh, pulmonary disease, maybe subclinical coronary artery disease, diabetes. Um, So we really don't know what we're getting into with that. Is that fair to say? I think that's probably a very good description of the reality, and that also makes for the importance of extending the notion of informed consent from my perspective and viewpoint also into the medical field. So 
when we, for instance, see someone that is planning to participate in such activities, we see it as part of giving that person full knowledge of what their medical situation and risks are prior to even making the commitment, yes, I'm going to do this. Because quite frankly, you know, if you are planning on committing multiple millions of dollars for participation in an extended training program, flight training and exposures, and then with a goal going to orbit, and you're not aware that, for instance, you happen to harbor prostate cancer or, or colon cancer or something that may cut your life expectancy short, those are just important things to be able to know to make that informed decision as to whether this is truly what you want to do. I want to thank Dr. Jan Stepanek, who's been our guest. We've been talking about civilians in space and what should we use as medical criteria. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening.